0: Well, I've heard it said, even prior to this morning, by multiple people, that in, in a normal summer, August long weekend is our, our least attended service of the entire year. Now, of course, I haven't been around for a normal summer yet. Until maybe we can consider this one to be normal. I know we've mentioned it also a few different times. So let me tell tell you, I'm very grateful that all of you are here today. I'm going to tell you another little secret. You don't have to tell anyone else that's not here, but uh, you are all my favorites. That's what this means. You are my favorites. And I get to play favorites, and you don't know, you know have to tell anybody else. We'll just keep it our medium sized secret this morning, and, uh, and we'll go on from there. But of course, we do all, summers are sacred in Manitoba. We all want to go and to enjoy them. Uh, my family and I were no exception. I'm, we're looking forward to heading out on some time away uh, beginning this Friday. We'll go down to Minneapolis for a weekend and watch the Jays beat the Twins soundly. Uh, and Pastor Earl's not even here to have the shade thrown his way to his favorite team. Uh, but we're going to do that, and then uh, we're going to go to Grand Beach the weekend after that with my family, and we're, we're also looking forward to being away. And so we will be gone the next two weeks, uh, but don't never fear. Uh, you will have uh, Emery and Earl will be uh, speaking the next two Sundays, and there'll be a lot of, of rich things to learn as they bring the word during that time. And uh, we also had some time even earlier this summer in July to go out to the lake, friend's cabin, and uh, when, they were there, when we were there, my dad took our oldest two boys out uh, fishing. And they were gone for about an hour, and they went to some of these supposed hot spots on the lake where you might be able to catch a fish. And there was maybe a few nibbles, but nothing that they were able to reel into the boat. And so they were coming back, and then uh, we went out to kind of greet them on the dock. And they were even killing the engine to to coast up into the dock. And then at that moment, boom, Malachi, my my, uh, middle child, gets this big bite on the line, and he's got a fish on the end. And so he's reeling the sucker in, and he's out uh, no help from anyone else, but a lot of advice getting thrown his way. He is pulling this thing into the boat, and then my friend Neil, he'll net it, and he chains it. And you can see, yeah, that was actually quite a nice catch for a kid that size. He caught a nice big northern, and he was very pleased. And I was pleased with him as well for having that experience. Though I have to also admit, my inner nerd came alive at that moment, and they're talking about how big the fish is, and I quoted Qui-Gon Jinn. I said, huh, There's always a bigger fish. It's a lot easier for me just to show you the video clip instead of trying to explain what I mean. Why would I even bring this up? Why would I bother sharing that quote or that clip? Well, I'd say just in the same way that Qui-Gon understands there's always a bigger fish, it's also true that our fears are prioritized. It'd be true of us to say there's always a a bigger fear. Not all of these things that we struggle with or deal with as we've been focusing on fear, not all of them are created equal. We have some that are much larger than others. For example, you might be afraid of water and never go swimming, or never even like to be on a boat, but if all of a sudden one of your kids is drowning in the lake, you'll jump in in two seconds flat, won't you? Because the fear of losing that child is much bigger than your fear of water. Or perhaps you're undergoing some financial strain, and you're looking at all the rising cost of fuel, and, and groceries, and inflation, and, and all of these things are, are, are getting your attention, but then you go into the office the next week, and all of a sudden there's these rumors floating around that a certain number of jobs are going to be cut and people are going to be laid off. Well, all of a sudden you quit worrying about grocery prices in a heartbeat because one fear is much greater than the other. Another thing that I was able to do when my in-laws were visiting this past week is we went up to the lookout in the forks. It's only six stories high, but it's high enough to be high. And if you're afraid of heights, I don't think you'd ever choose to go up there. But perhaps if you were someone that deals with maybe even a minor fear of heights, you've been in a situation where your group of friends really wanted to go do something, like go up to that lookout. And all of a sudden, you find yourself six stories up in the air. How did I get here? Well, the answer is that that fear of what people might think of you, that peer pressure would be greater than your fear of heights. Not all fears are created equal. They're prioritized. There's always a bigger fish. For me, it became something that was very personal during COVID. And, And at the time in the pandemic, a lot of my fear around this was, well, I didn't want my parents to get sick. I certainly didn't want them to get sick. I was worried about what would happen to them. And yet when my mom was diagnosed with cancer, pretty soon all my fears about COVID, I didn't think about it for even two seconds. I thought about it every day for a year, but all of a sudden all that was gone because there was something bigger to deal with. So you will know, if you take the time, you will know your greatest fear. It is the one that pushes all the others away. It wins the king of the hill. It's the biggest fish. When we come to Scripture, when we look at our approach of fear, we need to understand that the fear of God, is the biggest fish. It is the biggest fear. It is greater than any other fear that we may deal with, even if your fear and anxiety seems crippling at any given time. This is the point that Jesus makes when he's talking to his followers in Luke chapter 12, verses 4 to 7. You can turn there if you would like. And I will read it for you out of the English Standard Version. Jesus is, uh, is, is telling his followers, I tell you, friends, there you go, his friends. Do not fear those who can kill the body, and after that have nothing more to, that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has the authority to cast into hell. Yeesh. Yes, I tell you, fear him. But then his tone shifts. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value. Than many sparrows. So Jesus is saying, well, what can flesh do to you? What can other people do to you? What can the fears and the concerns of this world that you hold, how bad can it be? Well, the worst that they can do is they can take your life. That seems pretty bad to me, Jesus. Yeah. He says, but there is one more. There is one greater whom you should fear. There is one who does not just hold the power of your life in their hands, but the power of your eternal life. That is whom you should fear. And of course, that makes sense. If someone can only do this, but God is is capable of doing that, then of course he would be the one to fear. Everything else just affects the here and now. To moral language that we've used so far, everything else deals with the kingdom of earth. Yet God is the king of the kingdom of heaven, an eternal kingdom, one that is much more worth investing in. He and he alone is the one who will judge who holds our eternal destiny in our hands. And so what we have here, what we read together, is truly an uncomfortable warning. (laughs) This is not something that, that, that is easy to read, the fact that we are to fear God because he has the authority to cast into hell. He's the one who will judge us perfectly. But Jesus gives the stark warning because he wants us to be convinced, rightfully so, that the fear of God is greater than any other fear that we have in this life. And he does not want his friends, he's talking to his friends, he is not doing fire and brimstone from a pulpit just to to gain followers on Instagram. He's talking to people he cares about. And he wants those he cares about not to be crippled by fear. And he knows that the fear of God is more than capable of pushing all other smaller fears away. Yet I also realize from this passage that Jesus knows this is truly an uncomfortable warning. This reminder of the judgment of God. And so he does shift gears and he acknowledges, yes, God has His power and authority, but then he uses, again, this teaching method we've talked about, the how much more. He says, if God cares for the sparrows, he's not forgotten them. How much more will he care for you? He has not forgotten you. He knows you and he is mindful of you so much, says Jesus, that he knows even the numbers of hairs on your head which to me, the older I get, I'm like, that's easier and easier every year. <laughs> used to be a much more compelling case, right? God knows. He understands. He cares. And so while we should fear him, we should also take comfort in his love for us. So that is why Jesus can say, even in this reminder of the fear of God, fear not. You are of more value than the sparrows. You are valued by God. But the truth remains, and, and, and that lesson Jesus teaches is still crystal clear for us. That proper fear of God delivers us from the grip of all other fears. Proper fear of God. It's the biggest fish. It's the king of the hill. It will push out, cast out, deliver us from all other fears. We need to fight fear with fear. Now, this would be a very short sermon, but we need to learn what fear of God is. That's going to be the key. Because we do not fear God in the same way that we fear other things. That's not even what I believe Jesus is mainly speaking of here in the passage in Luke we read together. That Greek word for fear used in Luke 12 is phobeo, which is where we get our root word for phobia from. It's a very familiar word for for us when we talk about some of those big, huge, crippling fears. Like if you have a fear of, of tight spaces, you have claustrophobia. And I think if you have fear of wide open spaces, it's agoraphobia. You can be afraid of both, and people are are that way. And we use phobia to describe these feelings of terror, our greatest fears. And that is the most common way that this word would have been used uh, in, in the Greek world as well. This feeling of fear or terror, like being afraid of the dark, being afraid of heights, being paralyzed by public speaking. All of those things would be a phobia, phobeo. And yet, that's not the only way that this word can be used. And especially in Luke's gospel, he'll use it to talk about the fear of God. And this fear is something different. It's not talking about abject terror. It's talking about being in awe and reverence towards God. Proper fear of God is to be amazed by who he is. To be struck by how big he is, how unexplainably powerful he is, and how small and tiny we are in comparison that is the fear of god that we are talking about where we just begin to even try to think of these things and all we can do is say wow we are blown away by who god is and so if if you are someone that wants to fight the grip of fear in your life then you need to recapture your fear of god you need to recapture your awe and reverence of who god is how powerful he is, how amazing and holy he is of how much he has done for you. And when we can recapture that fear of God in our lives, then yes, I truly do believe our other earthly temporary fears will get pushed to the side. We need to recapture our awe and reverence. And, and perhaps you're someone near, I don't want to say that we've all lost this fear of God, I say recapture because I do see a trend in my life and maybe even in, in our evangelical churches where it's easier, easier for us to talk about personal relationship with God than it is to talk about awe and reverence of God. See, both of these things are true, but perhaps we have gotten some of this out of balance or out of whack. Much of this can be displayed in the songs that we choose to sing. There was a trend, especially a few years ago, of, of talking about Jesus in really intimate terms. And some of it actually made me uncomfortable. I talked about these as, as Jesus is my boyfriend songs. <laughs> We've sung a few here. And they're not necessarily bad, but, but they're just so focused on the, on the intimate, like how he loves us. You guys remember that song? We sing it every once in a while. And you'll sing or read these words, when heaven meets earth like a sloppy wet kiss and my heart turns violently inside of my chest. Jesus is my boyfriend. There's songs before that too, like Draw Me Close to You. That's, a, that's not a new song, it's a little older. But you'll, you'll sing, you are my desire, no one else will do. Because nothing else can take the, your place to feel the warmth of your embrace. Or a song that Jordan was just playing on the piano when we were in practice earlier this morning called You're Beautiful. A wonderful song that talks about how Jesus is your boyfriend. You'll, you'll sing the words, I see your face in every sunrise, the colors of the morning are inside your eyes. Now, are these songs wrong? No. Is Jesus beautiful? Is his embrace warm? Does he love us to an enormous extent? That's all true. Are these songs bad? No, we need to be reminded of these things. And we can worship and speak these and sing these truly. But I I worry that they may echo a church culture where we begin to value intimacy with God at the expense of ignoring or cultivating a proper fear of God. So yeah, we talk about the sunrise being the very essence of the eyes of Jesus, but then I also go to Scripture where it says that if we were to see God's face, we would be struck dead. (laughs) Dead. No one can see the face of God and live. That is the same God. And when we worship and when we learn and when we read and when we live, we need to do our utmost to keep this this balance of of this proper fear and awe and respect and yet this wonderful promise of personal intimacy and relationship. It's the same God. But here's the way that I would describe it to you. When we, we talk about a relationship with God, we need to know this, that God did not become smaller in order to personally abide with you. He did not become less. He did not subtract himself. It is the same God. That same spirit that when they built the temple, it came in this holy cloud. It was so beautiful that everyone had to rush out and fall on their faces. That same holy presence of God abides in us. So we are a temple of the spirit now. And God has not lessened himself in order to make it so. This is a miracle. This is one of the truths of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ that that same amazing awesome majesty of God can abide with us. And so yes, we can talk about personal relationship, but we must also talk about fear because God is the same and he has not become less. And so as an outpouring of that, our worship needs to remind us that God is still and always will be far beyond our comprehension. So consider this church. Just remember that our God is the creator of the universe. There was nothing. And then God spoke everything into existence. The name of the Lord Yahweh means I am, which points to the fact that God was and is and is to come. He is eternal. He has always been. He is now. He will always be. And He will always be the, cha- the same. He is never changing. I am, says the Lord, each and every day. He is. God is so incredibly powerful that we can't see his face and live. And when Moses would even meet in the presence of God, he would come down from the mountain. If he was up on Mount Sinai, he'd come down from the mountain and his face would be glowing, physically glowing with a heavenly radiance that was so bright, people would ask him to veil his face so that they could actually talk to him. That's the glorious presence of God. The presence of the Lord is also described as a whirlwind of power in Job, a pillar of flame and cloud in Exodus, and none could stand it. So again, when Moses would go to meet with God on the holy mountain, they had to cordon off the base of the mountain because if people would come too close, they would die. This is God. This is his holy presence. The people had a certain fear, an appropriate fear. And even as we cast our gaze into the New Testament, into that book of Revelation, we know that one day Christ will return with a robe dipped in blood, riding a white horse with a sword coming out of his mouth, however we look at that and view that, to judge all of mankind, all of humankind. This is, this is God. He is amazing. He is to be feared. I really appreciate the way that the, the writer of Hebrews puts it in Hebrews twelve twenty eight which I think also ties into these ideas that we've covered together about the kingdom of God. Uh, Hebrews 12, 28 and 29. Let me read those verses for you as well. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, with fear. For our God is a consuming fire. Who he is. He is a consuming fire. His kingdom cannot be shaken. Let us fear him and fear him alone. To talk about fear of God is to sum it up by saying that God is holy. Well, thanks, Pastor. Now, what does it mean to be holy? Well, to be holy means to be set apart. It's to say that there is nothing and no one that is like God, He is completely other. Not only is he unique, but he is someone that we cannot and can never fully understand or fully comprehend. God is unlike anyone or anything else. Now, there are so many ways to describe God's holiness, but there are two ways that I want to describe it here today that I believe will give us practical keys to, again, cultivating this fear of God and his holiness in our life. And these are two things that we need to balance in order to truly overcome our fear. The first is this, God is holy in his justice and his sternness. You could also say things like God is holy in his wrath. This is something that Jesus touched on in Luke 12 that we read together. God has the authority to cast into hell. God is holy. And because he is holy, he cannot abide sin. He is perfectly without sin. But not only that, he cannot even be around sin. He has this holy, justified hatred of sin. He cannot abide it. Do we sometimes fall into the temptation to abuse grace? To downplay the severity of our sin? Do we lack God's holy hatred of sin in our life? If that's true... And it also shows a lack of a fear of a holy God. But our sin should never be boiled down to just the breaking of rules. We need to remember that our sin is personal. Something that I appreciated from uh, uh, the book that I've been sharing uh, some quotes with you from, Running Scared by Edward Welch. He has a good reminder of this. He says, when forgiveness of sins seems ordinary to us, we are not startled by the holy righteousness of God that leads to his holy hatred of sin." Instead, we minimize both his righteousness and the seriousness of our own sin. We need to listen again. All disobedience is personal. Our sin is not just against God's law. It is against God. Church, our sin is not breaking rules. Our sin grieves God. It breaks his heart which is when he was working with the prophet Hosea, he he commanded Hosea to marry someone who would be unfaithful to him so that the prophet would know and understand what it felt like when God's people were unfaithful to him. He was a jilted lover. He was someone whose mercy and love was scorned again and again. The sins of God's people were never just a breaking of commandments or laws or rules. It has always and will continue to be deeply personal to him. Our sin grieves holy God. So what does it mean for us? How can we, again, do something practical to recapture this awe and reverence of God in our lives? Well, I think one of the main ways we do this is to obey. Obedience becomes of vital importance to recapturing the fear of the Lord. And this is how we show that we truly love him. This is how we show that we truly trust him. When we obey, his commands. Not to keep the rules, not to even provoke his anger, but to, to, to share his holy hatred of sin and to share fear in him. But the opposite is also true. This is something that I find very convicting. A life lived in persistent disobedience to God is a life lived in the grip of fear. Now, church, I wish I could get up here and tell you this is just purely theoretical for me but it's not. So let me be honest with you. There have been times in my life when old sinful habits have come up and have been persistent in my life. And I will tell you without a shadow of a doubt that those are the times in my life that I have been most afraid. There is a 100% correlation. Because what is this disobedience doing? It is eroding my fear, my awe and reverence for God. And when that awe and reverence is eroded, then it no longer has the ability to push those other fears to the side. And so there is a new king of the hill. And then it is fear that rules the day. So if you want to know one of the most practical things you can do to have victory over fear, it is to simply live in obedience to God's word. And then that will focus you and deepen you in this awe and reverence of God and those other fears will be pushed to the side. Because God is holy in his sternness and his justice. He takes sin very seriously. And that is one side that is true, that we need to hold in balance with the other truth, that God is holy in his love and in his forgiveness. Yes, he takes sin seriously, but he's also done something about it. And he didn't wait for you and I to get there. Because God is holy. He is set apart. He is completely other. His forgiveness is also holy. It is not the same type of forgiveness that we can offer and receive to one another. Our forgiveness is imperfect. Our forgiveness tends to be very temporary and conditional. God gives something different. More to the point, there is no sin too big or too great that God cannot forgive. I would like to read one more quote to you from Edward Welch. He asks this question. Do you ever think that your sins are too bad and that forgiveness for those sins requires you to get your act together first? If so, you don't fear God. You are minimizing his forgiveness. So on the one hand, we say we don't want to minimize God's holy hatred of sin. Now we don't want to minimize his forgiveness. You are acting as though his forgiveness is ordinary, just like that of any other person or make-believe God. If you think like that, you don't believe he is holy. In contrast, the fear of the Lord leads us to believe that when God makes promises too good to be true, like you are forgiven all of your sin, they are indeed actually true. God's forgiveness is holy, just as he is holy. And we can see through the story of Scripture how this holy forgiveness is described. God's forgiveness is preemptive because we read in Romans 5.8 that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners... While we were still stuck in our sin, hostile to God, Christ died for us. So don't fall into the trap thinking that you need to get your life together before you can encounter a holy God. He has forgiven you before you even asked for it, preemptively. God's holy forgiveness is self-sacrificial. As we read in John 5.13, Greater love has no one than this, that someone would lay down his life for his friends. Church forgiveness cost God something cost him his one and only son. A price that he was willing to pay and so that a holy God could be in relationship with an unholy people. And God's holy forgiveness is also unconditional, as is told to us in 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from some unrighteousness. The majority of unrighteousness. <laughs> what does it say, Church. All, all unrighteousness. We are wiped clean, white as snow, no stone left unturned, no sin left unforgiven because God is holy in his forgiveness. And I believe that last verse I quoted for you, 1 John 1-9, also gives us another practical step to take to remind ourselves of God's holiness, of his love and his forgiveness, and that's the step of confession. So if you want to know two things you can do when you walk through these doors to, again, recapture that fear of God, it is obey and confess. Obey his commandments and confess when you mess up. You can confess to your pastor if you want, but you know, I really don't have one of those cool little phone booth things where I sit in there and you tell me everything bad that you've done. I kind of wish I would. Sometimes I feel like, man, my sermons could really hit home if I just knew what everybody was doing, you know, the rest of the week. I'll be really on point. No, I don't don't want to know. I don't need to hear your confession. We, through Jesus, you have the ability to confess right to the Heavenly Father. And you can acknowledge to him, Father, I have wronged you. I have grieved you. I have fallen short. And he will say, son and daughter, you are forgiven. That act of confession is powerful. It's powerful in allowing us to be reminded of the holiness of God's forgiveness and to fear him more. Well, it's beautiful is that you can not only confess to God, though you need to do that, that's required, but you also have the opportunity to confess to a brother and sister in Christ. Again, it doesn't have to be your pastor, and it shouldn't be just anyone, but there was tremendous power in going to someone that you trust and saying, hey, I need to confess something to you. I need, I need your help in this area. I'd like you to hold me accountable in these ways. And this is, this is another practical thing that we can do to, to drag these sins from the dark out into the light. And you know what? It allows us to, to truly trust one another as, as a body of Christ and spur one another to this love and this fear of God that we're all hoping to achieve. So how do you cultivate your fear of God? You, you obey his commands and you confess when you fall short. This helps immensely in recapturing our fear of God. But when we talk about God being holy, in his sternness and his justice towards sin, and holy in his love and forgiveness of those sins. and we, Do we realize that we're talking about something very specific? Someone very specific. The fact is that the good news of Jesus perfectly displays this holiness. On the cross, when Jesus bled and died for our sins, we saw the wrath of God in full be poured out for the sins of the world. God did not hold back. He has a holy hatred of sin. He judges completely and truly. He did not make himself any less in that moment. It was poured out on Christ. Justice was done, and yet as Jesus himself declared in that moment, it is finished. That wrath is complete. In Jesus, God bore the punishment we all deserve so that he could freely offer us forgiveness. Without diminishing his hatred of sin or the justice that that is required, God found a way by sacrificing his son so that we can truly be washed white as snow, be truly offered this forgiveness that is preemptive and self-sacrificing and complete and unconditional. In Jesus, we see the holy God continue to be holy in his justice and holy in his forgiveness in full measure. And in Jesus, we see a holy God worthy of our awe, of our reverence, of our fear, and of our worship. So there is always a bigger fish, until there isn't. Until we realize that there was one fear above all others that could push all the others away. And Fear and reverence of God is the strongest force in this universe. So our goal then to cast out fear becomes recapturing our fear of the Lord and his holiness. We need to be reminded again through our obedience that God is holy in his justice and in confession that he is holy in his his forgiveness. And Jesus perfectly displays God's holiness in his life, his death, and his resurrection. So as the music team comes forward, we're going to sing one final song. I want to leave an invitation for you. Because this sermon, more than any others, when we talk about fear, gives you the on-ramp to trusting in Jesus to be all that you need. To know that he is the one who can display this forgiveness, offer this forgiveness to you. And so if you are thinking here, I've been afraid a lot, and fear of the Lord is not something that I've ever had, then today is, is is a wonderful time to begin that journey of trusting in the sacrifice of Jesus for your sins to know that you can start today to encounter this holy and majestic God. And you can fear him and you can also relate to him. And now is a wonderful time for all of us to worship a holy God and fear him alone. And so I'm going to invite you to stand. And the final song that we're going to sing together is called Only a Holy God. And we've sung it here before, so hopefully for many of you it's familiar And instead of focusing on singing in tune, instead of focusing on what in the world the band's doing up on stage, I want us to mean these words. My prayer is that this would be a true reflection of our heart's worship of awe and reverence and fear to a God who deserves it all.